Hello and welcome back to the second season of NDIS Know How, a podcast series that asks how can parents get the very best NDIS plan and sufficient funding to support their kid. This podcast is written and made by me, Melanie Dimmitt, the author of Special, and powered by HireUp, a disability support platform connecting families like mine with top-notch support workers. We are coming back strong after the holiday break with the woman who got Beyonce and Lizzo to change ableist lyrics in their songs. Hannah Diveny is a disability advocate, writer, actor, and creator of an incredible media company called Missing Perspectives. You might have seen her on the pages of Marie Claire magazine that crowned her the voice of now, on ABC's Q&A panel, or starring in her breakout acting role in the new SBS series, Latecomers. Hannah lives with her parents, two younger sisters, and loyal Border Collie in Sydney. She has cerebral palsy and uses a wheelchair to make her way through the world. In this chat, she tells me about her experience as an NDIS participant, her hopes for the future of the scheme, and shares her tips on how to advocate for yourself or someone you love. I start by asking Hannah, what happened when the NDIS first came into her life? So when the NDIS first came in, we had no idea what was going on. Um, cause up until then I had lived what, like 14 years of my life, um, in the, in the old system, which was basically that there were like giant waiting lists for everything. And you relied on this group called enable, basically, if you needed like mobility aids, or you would often be like registered in for blocks of therapy at a time. So you'd get like six weeks with a physio or six weeks with an OT and then or six weeks of the psych and then once that block of treatment was done and the like goals i put that in air quotes for anyone who can't see uh <laughs> was achieved you'd basically be left alone and then you go back on the waiting list when you needed it um but when the ndis came out we had no idea what was going on we knew that the scheme sounded good um the idea that like disabled people could have choice and control and pretty much like near constant access to support if they needed it sounded great but we had no idea how that would be implemented we didn't know um how you would go about getting funding we didn't know like how things would work in terms of there's a lot of disabled people in this country and obviously like the amount of money that they're supplying the ndis with wasn't endless so i think the first plan i had I think I was just finishing high school or just starting uni. So it was at a really critical time in terms of like my support needs were changing because obviously I was going from doing school five days a week and having that very supportive environment of people who knew me to becoming a much smaller fish in a very big sea and like not really sure how how uni would work, but wanting to try and make um, that experience as independent and as similar to what other people my age would be experiencing as I could. Obviously, like the pandemic soon got in the way of that. But um, the first two years of uni, yeah, it was, that was probably my first experience with the NDIS. And how would you describe the early stages of being on the NDIS as a participant? Um, They were confusing. I mean, I think anyone who has ever even looked at the NDIS, whether that's to apply or to try and formulate a plan, knows that there's like a load of boxes to take and there's so much language and it's so 
convoluted and I almost feel like you need a degree to like understand what they're actually asking you. Um, so that was tricky. We immediately went um, the plan management route because the idea of self-managing and having space for that much paperwork and that much kind of brain capacity when I was studying at uni and mum obviously was, you know, raising my sisters and working and also didn't want to have that much control over my life at age 18. She was like, it's probably time you start having some semblance of uh, of adulthood because um, obviously because of my care, care needs, that's slightly delayed or looks different to the average. Um, so, yeah, we immediately went with the plan management um, strategy. And then the first time we met um, with an LAC, which is a local area coordinator, that was actually a really um, dehumanising experience. Uh, the LAC in question kind of ended up treating me and writing about me as though I was five or like a, a, a young child who didn't really know what um, what they wanted and, e and even like when we read the report after it was written it was like really simple sentences and like really um, kind of basic understandings of my needs and it made me seem as though I was a lot younger or a lot less kind of ambitious and capable than I am and I think unfortunately that's not an uncommon experience in the NDIS lots lots of people that I know in the community have had their needs misrepresented in these kind of situations and that's because people who do that don't have any actual understanding or, or lived experience of disability they are literally just doing their job which involves kind of ticking a box and as soon as they've ticked a box or they come up against something that might vary as slightly outside that box they don't know what to do with it. Have you found that this has improved over your time as a participant or is it still quite a major issue? Yeah, so I have had lots of different LACs and I've found that um, over the years and especially most recently, I, um, with my most recent plan, I probably had the best um, person I could have in terms of trying to understand me and like representing what I actually said and went through and what I needed. Um, because unfortunately, the thing that happens if your needs are misrepresented, uh, as your listeners and you yourself will know, is that you don't get what you need out of the NDIS. They give you less money because they don't think you're in need of it or they um, don't, they'll take into account some things and not, uh, and not others. And I mean, no NDIS plan that I've ever had has perfectly captured what I need or being exactly the kind of support that I need but I think um, in recent years especially also because of all the media attention around the failures of the system and the like overspending or the the people who might or who have been found to have wrought the system it's kind of gotten better but I think um, the NEIS is one of those things that sounds great in theory and looks great on paper, but doesn't necessarily translate so smoothly into practice. How do you prepare in the lead up to 
the the very stressful, very scary, they shouldn't be, but they are, NDIS plan reviews. How do you prepare yourself when you're about to head into one of those? Well, we basically, my mum my and I um, go through absolutely everything that I need, everything that I use, and we kind of create our best case um, scenario and then sort of work backwards. So in my best case scenario plan, that will often be like, cost it out and, and we'll look at like the, the final number that we come up with and go, well, there's no way they're going to give us that. Okay. So let's like scale it back and get, get rid of the things that are nice to haves until we have something that we absolutely like, this is what we need. This is just how it's going to be. And then if that doesn't work, um, we are pretty good at finding workarounds or I'm lucky in that, um, my needs don't change all that often at the moment. Like I, I think once you become an adult with a disability, you sort of plateau a little. Whereas when you're something like Arlo's age, your needs are changing every couple of months, let alone every year, um, because you grow and you just that's what you do. So um, for me, it's it's definitely slightly easier in that things can sort of be pushed into the long term and I know that they're still they're still going to be there. Have you ever had to appeal one of your plans? Yes. How did yeah. that go? Uh, well, it went so well, not. not. <laughs> um, I had this bathroom renovation that my family and I wanted to do to try and make the bathroom that I share with my sisters um, really more accessible and more user-friendly because it was designed and built when I was a much younger child. And obviously I've grown a bit since then and my, my mobility has changed, my needs have changed. Um, the ways I'm going to be able to be independent have changed. Um, and we, we reviewed that and they still said no. And then we were lodging an application with the AAT, the Administrative Appeals Tribunal, which is like the step up. And then they basically told me that I couldn't have um, a case with the AAT and something else in my plan that needed reviewing. Like I couldn't have both of those things open at once. So I had to decide which was more important, the thing that I needed more urgent review of, which was that I'd basically run out of money in one section and needed more, otherwise I wasn't going to be able to fund any of my services, or this bathroom renovation, which I guess technically, or, or, or though like necessary to my overall independence, would be considered a nice to have. Yeah. Um, so I had to close the review with the AAT. What do you think now of the AAT being scrapped? Do you think that's a good thing? I think the AAT was unfortunately being heavily relied on, but I think that tells you how broken the system is. Like if the system wasn't failing people, the AAT wouldn't need to exist. So I'm hopeful with it being scrapped that that means they're going to, they're going to go back and like actually address the like root cause of the issue and, and understand that like, the reason those pathways exist is because the system that got them there wasn't working in the first place. Like I, I, I don't think it's helpful to scrap that and then just 
leave things as they are because it's not working. So I think as long as the people who make those decisions are committed to like untangling everything and for want of a better phrase, like getting to the bottom of it, then the scrapping of the AAT will be a good decision. But um, until we see what what reform happens, it's hard, it's hard to say. And I think hopefully like the fact that we have someone as vocal and with as much lived experience as Kurt Fernley in position of the chair of the NDIS um, is a huge, huge win. It would make a lot of sense to me if most of the top dogs, if not all of them, at the NDIA had disabilities themselves or lived disability adjacent experiences, which is what I call it when parents or carers or whoever advocate on behalf of a disabled person. Um, Around self-advocacy, what advice do you have for people, maybe participants who are new to the scheme? um, Well, the first thing I would say is you are the person who knows your disability best and you are the only person who knows what you really need and what's a nice to have. Most, most disabled people that I know don't bother asking for nice to haves. Pretty much everything they ask for is necessary. Otherwise they wouldn't be asking for it. That's how they've learned to exist in the NDIS system. But I think as much as you can um, be very clear on what you need, don't let someone else fill in the blanks for you because they might misunderstand or misrepresent the situation. Like I know for me, um, this time around for my last plant, I wrote what I need and then gave it to the plan manager or the or the LAC and said, here, it's done for you. Just make sure it's in the right boxes, please. So was that like a letter that you wrote to yeah. them with everything? Yeah. Yeah. It was basically just a letter explaining everything because I – I know that at the end of the day, the one person who's going to understand my disability the best is me. And no matter what the NDIS say, there is no way in the world someone who is with you for two or three hours max once you've never met before, who might have no prior experience or lived experience of disability could ever capture the complexity of it. Yeah. Definitely. I do try and end these on a positive note, if possible. So tell me, lovely, how has the NGIS supported and helped you to live the life that you want to live? Well, the NGIS has meant that my parents um, and I, now that I'm an adult, don't have to necessarily, like, fork out so much cash, I guess, and that we are able to ask for things without losing other things in our life or without like tightening the tightening the belt a, a few notches so to speak and i think um the f- the freedom of knowing that you've got money that doesn't really have like any consequence for you personally is is hard to express i mean i and not necessarily a huge fan of the fact that it's all put in buckets and those buckets are immovable and you can't move money around where you need to in your plan. But I also know that like so many of the things that I that I do and the fact that I 
can employ support workers to, to help me and give me more independence is all thanks to the NDIS. So anyone who's advocating for the NDIS knows that there's so much potential for it to be a wonderful system. So hopefully we, we can see that potential maximised and harnessed properly. Thank you so much to Hannah for this insightful chat. You can find links to Hannah's social handles and her media company, Missing Perspectives, in the show notes. A big thanks also to Hire Up for supporting me in making this podcast. And thank you for tuning in. I'll catch you again soon on NDIS Know How.